Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Genesis, which means genealogical origin, describes a time from creation to the movement of Jacob and his wider family into Egypt. Scholars tell us that the book was likely written over several, several centuries, combining oral and written traditions. In the first chapter of Genesis, we begin with the creation of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, as well as the stories of the first humans. Genesis tells the story of God literally speaking the universe into creation through its mythic and legendary style of writing. Let's hear now the story of creation from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and the darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind, and it was so. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. We begin a new sermon series Uh, this morning that will take us over the next several weeks in which we give ourselves permission to ask some questions and to explore our faith and especially to name some of our doubts and misgivings, those things that we find difficult to reconcile with uh, in terms of our faith and lived experience on the one hand and, and what we've been taught and told on the other. Some of the most poignant and courageous conversations I've ever had as a pastor are with those who, for any number of very good reasons, can simply no longer believe in the God that they've been told about or taught about over the years. These conversations are invariably hard, but I cherish them deeply because they are often spoken in deep honesty and humility, 
And because somewhere deep within them, I can even hear something of my own lifelong struggle to believe, at least to believe all those irreconcilable things that I had always assumed I had to believe in order to be a Christian and to avoid the label of being a heretic or at least a doubter. And so somebody will come and say to me something like, well, let me say this, they will often say it with some degree of guilt or even anguish. And usually in like a, uh, in a hushed whisper, as if disclosing a secret that shouldn't be disclosed ever again. And they'll say, um, at this point in my life, I don't know what I believe anymore. Or they'll say, after this happened in my life, I don't know how I can believe anymore. Or uh, given all my life experiences, I don't know if I even believe at all anymore. Well, perhaps you're one of them. Perhaps you have struggled with faith or what organized religion has made of faith to such an extent that you are, or at least considering, living a life after God, a sort of post-God or post-Christian life. For centuries, Christianity has been plagued by this this binary thinking that says that you can't be a Christian unless you believe a certain way and unless what you believe you are absolutely certain about. And this, this binary thinking leaves very little room for questions or for doubts and certainties. It leaves little room for those moments in which we say, well, but, but what it, about that? Or simply, I don't know. And this all-or-nothing kind of thinking has created a wake of spiritual trauma for a growing number of would-be believers, and it is the primary impetus behind the growing swell of spiritual refugees that are now seeking to free themselves of religion in pursuit of a post-God life. There's another more generous way of believing, and that's what I want to address over the next several weeks. But let me say, if you are not certain about what it is you believe, you're not alone. And I'm not just saying that to be nice. I'm saying, factually, you're not alone. Uh, According to the Pew Research Center, 79%, that's about four out of five Americans today, say they believe in God. But when you ask them if they're, quote, absolutely certain in their belief, that number on average drops to 63%. That's about two out of three Americans. When you ask baby boomers, that's ages 57 to 75-year-olds, if they are absolutely certain about their faith, it drops to 34%. That's one out of every three. Among my generation, Generation X, that's 41 to 57-year-olds, it drops to 28%, one out of four. Among millennials, ages 25 to 40-year-olds, it drops to 12%. That's roughly one out of every 10 Americans in that generation. You see the the trend. Uh, The younger you are, the greater your uncertainty. Or maybe the real truth is, the younger you are, 
the more honest you are about your uncertainty. There's one more statistic that's, I think, relevant to what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, and it points, I think, to the heart of the problem for many of us when it comes to believing in God. Of those 79% of Americans who say they believe in God, only 56% of them believe in, quote, the God of the Bible. 23% believe in some other higher power or spiritual force. In other words, we don't have a belief problem in our culture. What we have is a problem with how our interpretation of the Bible has created a conception of God that people can't reconcile with their lived experience. People are experiencing God. And to some extent, they believe that it's real. They believe that it's even life-giving. But they struggle to reconcile their belief of God with the God that they've been introduced to in the Bible. Some of you participated in our survey this week. We had about 350 respondents to this survey, and I want to lift up just four, I think, really relevant uh, takeaways from some of your responses. Um, We asked you, do you experience spiritual doubt or uncertainty of faith? 78% of you said yes. That is, sometimes, frequently, or all the time, 78% of you. We asked whether you ever question God directly intervenes in the affairs of your life or the world. 83% of you, sometimes frequently or all the time. To the question, I feel God nudging or prompting me to act in a certain situation. 85% of you said sometimes frequently or all the time. When we asked you, Are you confident that even in the worst of circumstances, God is creating and offering possibilities for a better future? 86% of you said sometimes, frequently, or all the time. Do you see what I'm saying? Roughly 80% of you, 85% of you, suggest that you experience spiritual doubt. But on the other hand, this this hopeful data shows you also experience a great deal of hopefulness and faith in your life. And we struggle with these, these two ways of, of living. In, in, in a binary world, you, you struggle with that. We create this space here in this sanctuary to acknowledge that both can be true. That you can doubt and have incredible, extraordinary, resilient faith at the same time. Here's the question. Could it be that It's actually not the Bible that gets it wrong, but that it's our interpretation of the Bible that often gets it wrong. Walt Whitman, the great poet, he once gave some very extremely um, unhelpful, impractical advice. He said, re-examine all that you've been told at school or church or in any book and dismiss whatever insults your soul Well, thanks, Walt Whitman. I mean, he makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? But we know it's not. I know it's not because I've done it. I do it even still. It's hard work. It's scary. Throughout this series, I'm not going to ask you ever to dismiss everything or even anything that you already believe. 
I only want to give you permission to ask some very daring questions and then to faithfully, carefully attend to that which heartens and does not offend your soul. Because so much of what we've been taught to believe over the years cripples the soul. Doubt can be the purest form of belief. And disbelief can be the surest pathway to salvation. Running from faith can actually be the most honest expression of running toward God. And so I'm going to ask you to trust that God cares less about what you think or believe. And God cares more about who you are, how you're doing, where you're going, and what you are doing with your one and only precious life. And one aspect of our faith that seems most uncertain for people is about how God works in our lives and in the world. Does God get involved in the ordinary events and affairs of human life and the natural world? Does God work supernaturally, intervening every, in everyday affairs and in real time as they're unfolding? Even sometimes intervening occasionally to achieve some higher divine purpose. And most of us in our heart of hearts might truly hope so. And the world can, can feel so random. We as humans on this earth can feel so helpless and vulnerable. Surely God is in charge. And perhaps every one of us, according to this, the, the, the survey we did, many of you can point to moments in your life looking back and say God was involved. You perhaps can, can, can do that right now. You, well, how many times have you said to yourself, or somebody else, there but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. A friend of mine should have been at his desk in Tower 2 when the planes struck the World Trade Center on September 11th. But on his way out of his apartment building, he took an unexpected call that drew on and on and on until he was late. He missed his train. He never made it to his desk that day. And what do you call that? If you called it the hand of God, I would never argue once with you. I might even agree. But I'd also remember the mother in my previous church the day after her teenage son perished in a rollover car accident who asked me, why did God allow my baby to die? I'd remember the man I once visited in jail two churches ago. He was crippled by this addiction that had just about ruined every aspect of his life. And he looked at me and he said, I have prayed and prayed, but God will not take this affliction from me. I might even remember the Alabama senator who, right after Hurricane Katrina, claimed that the hurricane hit where it hit because Mississippi and Louisiana had legalized gambling. He said, God sent the hurricane to punish those states for their sin, which may have gotten a few amens, but didn't exactly explain why the hurricane only took out eight casinos, but hundreds of churches. <laughs> How does God work? Maybe the real question is, what can we say that won't insult the soul? Perhaps the best and most reliable clue I can find 
in the Bible itself is where we find in this passage that you just heard Reverend Kendall read is God's very first act of creation. That moment in human time, before human time, when God created the world. First things can tell you a lot about somebody. Pay attention to the first things about God. First things can tell you a lot about somebody. First impressions, first acts, first words, first moves. I I still remember the very moment I first met Lori. We were 16. This was 36 years ago. But I still remember what she was wearing. I still remember the way she tilted her head to one side and smiled. I remember what she said. First things, they just stay with you. Pay attention to the God that we meet in the very first verse of the first chapter of the first book of our Bible. God's spirit sweeps like this bird, it says, across a soup of nothingness. It's just a bottomless emptiness. It's chaos, pre-creation chaos. There's no order at all. And this God, as God sweeps across it like a bird, he sees all that pre-creation chaos, and he sees within it the, the real potential and possibility for life, and for beauty, and for order. And this God who sees all that potential and possibility just can't be quiet any longer, can't stand by any longer, and so God speaks to it, beckons it. And what does God say to all that chaos? The first words are, let there be light. God's first recorded act in time and space Let there be light. Isn't that an odd command, actually? Why didn't God just stare at all the darkness and chaos and and just say, um, light? Or like a a director on a movie set, you know, lights, camera, action, you know, something declarative, imperative. But God says, um, let there be light. According to linguists, this uh, let there phrase, it's what's called the jussive mood of the verb to be. It's a rare verb form, the jussive move. I'd never heard of the jussive move before studying this text. The jussive form is a command, but it's not like the imperative form of a command in which maybe a person of greater authority says to somebody of lesser authority, do this or do that. Like a mother might say to her kids, put on your shoes. Or a spouse might say, get out of my kitchen, right? (laughs) The the justive mood is different. It's not coercive. The justive mood is actually an expression of hope. That something will happen. It might not happen. It doesn't have to happen. The command itself is really nothing more than the speaker's stated desire that it will happen. It's like a a stated dream or a wish or a hope for something. It's like you would go outside and sing, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. The singing of it doesn't make it snow. But it does state your desire that it would snow. This is God's first act of creation. State a dream, a wish. 
for all that chaos. God's first words, let there be light, infuses and gathers all that stuff, pulls it together by divine wish. Here in the very first act of creation, there is no coercion. There's just persuasion. It's the very first glimpse into how God works in our lives and in our world. We meet in this story a God who will not force us to do anything, even if God might have the power to do so. Instead, what we have is a God who calls us and beckons us, persuades us to life. Hey, psst. Come to life. Flourish. Act. I don't know how to explain how a friend of mine catches a call and misses a plane that would struck his tower and killed him. I can't explain to a mother how the world would take her baby. But the God of the Bible is a God whose essence is expressed not in the power to make something happen or not happen, but in the power to persuade us to pursue the divine wish, the holy hope that God has for us to live into all the hidden potential and possibility that only God can see in us. And I call this whatever you want. I like to call it the lure of God. It draws, it, it, it entices, it lures us forward, but the choice is still ours to pursue. We can say no. Now, when preachers speak of lures in church, you know, they often maybe refer to this lure as the lure of temptation, you know, or the lure of sin. And they'll say, you know, a lure is artificial, so whatever you pursue that's not of God, you know, is, is, is sinful, and, and a lure is, is not real, I, but I disagree. I disagree. Love is real. Wonder and beauty, these are real. Have you ever been lured by love, beauty, wonder? A few weeks ago, maybe you noticed this, I, I woke up, it was a Sunday morning, I was doing my morning routine, I was heading out the door and I looked up and the whole sky was almost like on, on fire with orange and red and yellows. It was the most spectacular sunrise I've ever seen in my life. I mean, there's nothing like a Colorado sunrise. And I caught a glimpse of this and it, it just struck me. I, so I took a chance, I went back upstairs, I... I poked Lori, she was still in bed. And I said, God's showing off, you gotta come see this. It's beautiful out there, I said. And she got up and this is a picture from an upstairs window. Lures, beauty beckons, love, it lures. And what is truly beautiful and lovely and pure doesn't have to ever coerce. In fact, it refuses to force its will on anyone or anything. This is true of God. Jesus embodied this same persuasive nature of God in his life. He was the perfect embodiment of the lure of God. There's a Greek word in the New Testament. The word is kaleo in the Greek. It means to call or to invite it occurs like 134 times in the New Testament, almost always referring to Jesus and the work of Jesus. Jesus is this divine lure 
walking around Galilee, inviting, calling, luring disciples to follow, luring the lame to walk and the blind to open their eyes, luring even the dead Lazarus to come out of the tomb, luring, calling, enticing the ashamed to to come out of their, their shadows. He even called, lured the religious elites to get out of their bunkers of pretense and piety. Even on the cross, to his left, to his right, were criminals who seemed to be just naturally drawn to his light and his grace and his truth. And what were they drawn to? Same thing that you and I are drawn to, I think. God's self. That lure of God draws us to God's self, in whose presence we fulfill the divine will for who we might become. Hebrews had this reverence for God, and especially for God's mysterious essence, um, such such a reverence that they had this command, one of the Ten Commandments. Don't mess with the essence of God by creating idols or statues or images. No graven images, because when you do that, you distort the essence of God, you diminish it. And the same, they believed, was true of their language. No single word could encapsulate who God really is. And they tried. And they came up with a lot of different names for God in Scripture, but there are two that appear most frequently in the the Old Testament. The first is recognizable. Yahweh is the word. Christian interpreters have translated Yahweh as the Lord. And it kind of points to God's sovereignty. So think about like this cosmic org chart. And God's at the top. God reports to nobody. God is the boss, limited by nothing. Yahweh is often translated as Lord, but it really just means I am. Or I am what I am. In other words, I'm sovereign, I'm unbounded. And the Hebrews believe that the I am, Yahweh, was in everything and everywhere. But there's this other name for God in Scripture. And it's how we have translated this name in Scripture that has created for us a whole host of problems for how we have come to understand the power and nature of God in the world. The Hebrew word for this name is Shaddai. It appears 72 times in Hebrew Scripture, and it's often translated by Christians as Almighty. The full expression is El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. And it's from that simple but debatable translation that a concept that's completely foreign to the Hebrew mindset came to be. What Christian theologians have called for centuries omnipotence, God's omnipotence. Omni meaning all, potens meaning power. According to the doctrine of of omnipotence, this almighty God has the power to control and manage, even micromanage everything that's happening, everything that will happen, and even preventing things that might happen. Whether you believe in the omnipotence of God or not, it is a completely foreign concept to the Hebrews. As I've taught before, the Hebrew, Hebrew translation of this word El Shaddai is not God Almighty. 
It's the breasted one. Mm. Isn't that an evocative image of God? Not the God who's up there doing this and doing that, but a God who's doing this. God, the breasted one who desires to hold us, to bring us close like a mother or a father, to care for us with a deep and abiding love. And it's this tender image of God that Jesus, that Jesus was, 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 was captured by, moved by. And when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? Pray like this. Our Father. In the Aramaic, Father is Abba. It means Daddy. It could mean Mommy. It means parent, loving, tender, close, proximate. A parent. The God of Jesus was Abba, not the Almighty One. In our relationships that we would characterize as loving, husband, wife, partner, siblings, parents. Um, we know that love never means control. It never means coercion. In fact, the opposite of love is coercion. We know that, the, that love means the opposite of, of, of control. It, it means actually letting go, relinquishing control, saying you are free and autonomous. Go. Be who you are. Parents know this. Some of us learn the hard way. We learn the hard way that there's a limit to our capacity to control or coerce our kids. We try. <laughs> we, we try until they finally wear us down, and then we go, go, right? <laughs> there's a point where we learn we can't control our kids anymore, and we learn that we, we shouldn't. That we have only left the, the, the power to persuade them. Like, as God speaks to the creation, all we can do is speak to our kids and say, flourish, come, live. And to do that, we voluntarily step back so they can be who they are supposed to be. And when we step back, we, we, we give them all the potential for, for life and all the potential for risk. And that's love. Like God on the day of creation. All we can do is speak our hopes and our dreams for them. Luring them toward the good. How does God work in our lives? God calls us. Beckons us. God opens the arms. Draws us in. In my first church, a member came to my office. She was grief-stricken. Her 38-year-old son who lived with her came home from work at night, pulled into the garage, stepped out of his car and collapsed. Died of a sudden heart attack. And his sudden death led to a crisis of faith for her. How could she believe? Why, why would God do this? And she came to me to say, I don't think I can come to church anymore, at least not for a while. It's going to be too hard. I, I don't want to answer all the questions. I don't want to hear the prayers. I don't want to hear the hymns. I don't want to hear scripture. I might shake my fist at God. I might be angry. I might doubt. I might cry. So I proposed an alternative to her. I said, what if you came to church, but you, you didn't have to come inside? I said, you could stay in your car the whole time. When worship begins, um, I'll tell the ushers to go open the front doors. 
We had a storefront church and a strip mall. It's a parking lot right there. There was a, a space right by the door. I said, just pull up, roll down your window. You can hear the hymns, the scripture. You can roll up your window if you don't want to hear it. You can shake your fist at God. You can cry. No one will know. And for the next three weeks, she sat in her car on Sunday morning. The window rolled down. And I don't know what she heard, but on the fourth Sunday, she came inside. Maybe she heard what she heard, what, what chaos heard uh, on that first day of creation. Let there be light. Maybe she heard what Jesus said over and over again to the brokenhearted. Come to me, come to me, all who are weary. Our takeaways for today, there is a God in the Bible many of us have never met. This God loves us too much to coerce or control us. And this God beckons and lures us toward the divine dream, calling us to life and action and flourishing. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.